Yeah, what a joy to be with you, and um, we have had a, a great history with Common Ground Church, um, met Rigby Wallace uh, in Auckland of all places. Uh, Covenant Grace is not our first church plant. We planted a church in 2004 in Wellington, New Zealand, and uh, so we lugged our family all the way across uh, to the land of the long white cloud and uh, encountered rain. That's off. Uh, encountered rain and uh, good rugby and uh, good food, but uh, that was cut short. We were there for just under four years and uh, handed the church over. The church is still going well and uh, made our way back to South Africa. But just before coming back to South Africa, met with Rigby and Sue in Auckland uh, by God's divine providence. We hadn't planned to meet with them. Uh, there was another friend who you might know, Tom Tapping was there, and uh, we met with Tom, and Tom was like, hey, you've got to meet this guy, Rigby. He's going through kind of a similar journey to you. We were shifting theologically and philosophically in terms of how we understood the gospel and how we should do church, and, uh, and we just connected, and then um, on our way back, um, we got back to South Africa April 2008, and it was in July 2008. I preached at Rondebosch, um, you know, and uh, so I was going to ask if anybody remember that, but anyway, um, <laughs> that would be setting myself up for failure. Um, but it was a great experience, and uh, we have enjoyed a relationship with Common Ground since then. All right, so we're going to be jumping into Ephesians chapter 1. I know you guys are going through the series, and I'm going to be just carrying on from this incredible passage, and uh, I'm going to ask my dear wife to read uh, this passage for us. But what you need to know is that verses 3 through to 14 of chapter 1 are one long sentence in the Greek. And so this is an English teacher's nightmare. In the Greek, there are no, there's no uh, punctuation, there's no commas, no full stops. It's one long sentence. And so in one, one sense, it reads like a hymn. It reads like a song of praise. Uh, which really is at the foundation of what this is. So Wendy's just going to read for, for us from verse 3. Thanks. Okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, he, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the rich 
truth that it brings to us. We thank you for words like election and blessing and heavenly places and redemption, inheritance, forgiveness of sins, grace being lavished upon us. And I pray right now that you would lavish your grace upon us, Lord. May we have fresh insight into your eternal plan, Lord, that we would be lavished this morning with understanding of your grace in Christ for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've called this passage, um, or the title of the sermon, God's Great Cosmic Plan. And I get that from verses 9 through 10. So just a glance there at verses 9 through 10 again with me. And it says they're making known to us. And so Paul's wanting us to see something here. He wants us to see and to know and to enjoy this passage from verse 3 to 14, like I said in the Greek, is one long sentence, um, but often it is a passage that's hotly debated. There are some deep theological truths here that often fly in the space of theological debate, but when we see the context and the tone in which it's written, it's not actually there for theological debate, it's there for a declaration of praise. And so it's actually couched in language of praise. It's actually a hymn of celebration. And so in Paul's mind, he is celebrating this great cosmic plan. And the great cosmic plan is this, making known to us the mystery of his will. God is revealing his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Here it is, as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in Him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, the entire scope of all creation, this cosmic reality of all things in heaven and things on earth are going to be caught up in God's sovereign plan, and that is to unite all things in Christ. All things being all things, right? Things between man and man, things between man and earth, things between us and God. And so the implication is if there's going to be a great uniting together, a great coming together, the implication is that something is broken. Right? If something needs to be brought back together, it means there's been an undoing or there is a, a brokenness that exists where? In the cosmos. There's a brokenness then, and clearly the brokenness is because of sin. Sin is a harsh reality that is very destructive and very divisive, and so God's eternal plan is to fix it to unite the brokenness, to heal the brokenness, to restore the brokenness. And the brokenness is not outside of us. The brokenness exists even inside of us. The brokenness is all around us, but the reason it's all around us is because it's part of us. And part of God's great cosmic plan is to unite and restore. And so we have to start with the brokenness. We have to start with the reality of something needs fixing and God's got a great plan in order to fix it. And we need to understand verses like Romans 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And that leaves us in a hopeless situation. At least from God's perspective, he's not required to act. 
God's analysis of the scenario, God's perspective on the situation is this. There is none righteous. None. None righteous. Since the fall, there is no one who does good. There is no one who never sins. And so I want us just to feel the reality of the brokenness, the pervasiveness of the brokenness, the extent of the brokenness. This isn't, there are a few who are unrighteous. No, there are none. There are none who are righteous. And there is no one who never sins. The extent of sin, the extent of the fall is extremely pervasive. And God didn't have to respond. God was not required to respond. God was not obligated to respond. He didn't have to fix the situation. But Ephesians 1 tells us he had a plan. He had a plan. He had a cosmic plan to fix the situation. John MacArthur on this particular passage says, If God were to exercise only his justice, no person would ever be saved. And that's because none are righteous. And so he's not obligated. He's not obligated to save anyone if God were only a God of justice. But the good news of the gospel is that God is not only a God of justice, he's a God of mercy and justice. And so he's got a plan. And the plan is not to ignore justice. The plan is to satisfy justice and to magnify mercy. This is an incredible plan. It's a cosmic plan because it's going to fix the problem, but it's a cosmic plan because we're going to see the glory of the gospel in this plan. Michael Eaton says, since mankind fell into sin, the entire universe has been falling apart. Men and women are hateful towards each other. God and man are mutual enemies. Creation does not easily submit itself to human shepherding. God's plan is to bring it all back together again and put it under Christ. Well, the slide's coming up. Cool. So how is this plan going to unfold? How is God going to fulfill the plan? What we're going to see in this passage is just three incredible events, three strategies to this God's, uh, God's cosmic plan, and all three members of the Trinity are jumping in to solve the problem. And so the first point we're going to look at is the Father planned our salvation. Secondly, the Son purchased our salvation. And thirdly, the Spirit preserves our salvation. Number one, the Father planned our salvation. We see this in verse 4, that the Father had an eternal plan. This wasn't an afterthought. It was an eternal plan to unite rebellious, sinful people to himself. The text itself tells us that he decided this before the world was created. And so it was in eternity past that God chose to save a multitude of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue before there was a nation, tribe, and a tongue. God, in eternity past, chose a bride for his son. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. Theologians refer to this as unconditional election. Choosing us before. 
unconditional election. Meaning that there was nothing in us, there was nothing in you or I that made God or caused God to want to choose us. This is entirely his doing. There was nothing in us or deserving of us that caused God to look upon us with mercy. Remember, all have fallen short. And so he's not compelled by anything in us, but he was compelled by something in him, which is why it's unconditional. There was no condition we could meet because we were unrighteous. We couldn't meet a righteous condition. We can't even meet a willing condition. And so God needed to meet all the conditions. If we were to have to meet a condition for him to choose us, I would submit to you that would be unfair. How are dead sinners unable to produce any good works because all we ever do was sin, make a righteous move towards a holy, righteous God? And so there is mystery here. I want to admit that there is an element of mystery to God's electing grace But what we need to satisfy ourselves with is not human logic, but with God's revealed word. And so the Bible roots this eternal electing plan of God in the heart of God. It directs us when we want to, when we want to see, well, why? When we want to ask the question, why would God elect unconditionally on the basis of his choice alone? We want to ask questions like why? And the Bible does speak to this, but in a very unique way. And so I just want to highlight just election in the Old Testament and how election works in the New Testament. It's both the same, but I want, to just, I want you to see it from both the Old and the New. In the Old Testament, we read of God's choosing of the people of Israel, and it was an unconditional choosing. Notice this language in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Look at this. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so there's a unique calling to a unique nation. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. So not only is it you didn't qualify, you actually disqualified yourself. In terms of a human perspective, you didn't qualify at all. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Here it is in verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you. And this is where the scripture directs us. If we want to ask the question, well, why would God only choose multitudes? And we must remember that he does choose multitudes of every nation, tribe, and tongue. The answer is because the Lord loves them. The Lord set his love on you and chose you, not because of any condition you met, but because of him. Because of him. Because he loves And we know in the New Testament it tells us that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us in 1 John 4. But here again we see the parallel verse or the New Testament version of this Deuteronomy passage in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 to 10. It says, but you are a chosen race. It's the same language that God used for the people of Israel. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
Notice it's singular, not nations. You see, the, the people of God were always one people, a holy nation, a set-apart nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, you didn't qualify. You couldn't meet the conditions. But now you are God's people. How? Here we go. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So mercy changes everything. Mercy flows from the heart of God to an undeserving people. God didn't have to save anyone. He was not required to save anyone. But because he's a God of mercy, in love, verse 4 and 5 says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, this eternal will of God that we are getting a glimpse into. And it's a mysterious glimpse. We, we don't see it completely. We have human perspective. We are tainted ourselves by sin. Our logic is not perfect. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And so, yes, you need to wrestle with this truth. And if you're not wrestling with it, you're not really seeing it for what it is. God in love. Notice there Paul picks up on the Deuteronomy text. It's because of his love. Let's never question his electing grace. Lest we confront ourselves with the very love of God. Some object and say, well, that's, that's unloving. No, the text says it's in love that he did that. It's in love. Maybe, we, maybe we're projecting our sense of love or our understanding of love onto how God should love. Let's be careful of projecting how we see love and how we do love onto how God loves. It should be the other way around. In love, he predestined us for adoption. God's eternal plan was to have a family. He predestined us, look at the text, for adoption. Adoption, the Father moves towards us as orphans, undeserving, and he adopts us into his family, predestined us for adoption. And we celebrate adoption, don't we? At a human level, we rejoice in the prospect of adoption. Some of you here might have adopted children, and we rejoice in that process, it's a beautiful thing. And the text is showing us that, that God's electing, predestined, predestining grace is a beautiful thing because it results in adoption. And apart from this adoption, we would remain orphans outside of the family of God. So let me bring this first point to a close. It's the longest point if you were worried. The sinner is not only forgiven, the sinner is not only brought in for supper, the sinner, the sinner is given the family name. The sinner is adopted as a result of God's electing grace. Let me let Spurgeon draw this to a close. Uh, Spurgeon says this, There are some who say, It's unfair for God to choose some and leave others. Now I will ask you one question. Is there any of you here who this morning wishes to be holy, who wishes to be saved, to leave sin and walk in holiness? Yes, there is. I do, says someone. Then God has elected you. But another says, no, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to give up my lusts and sins. 
Why should you grumble then that God has not elected you? For if you were elected, you would not like it, according to your own confession. If God this morning had chosen you to holiness, you say you would not care for it. Do you not acknowledge that you prefer drunkenness to sobriety, dishonesty to to honesty? You love this world's pleasures better than salvation. Then why should you grumble that God has not chosen you to salvation? If you love salvation, he has chosen you for it. If you desire it, he has called you to it. If you don't, what right have you to say that God ought to have given you what you did not want? So let's wrestle. Let's wrestle with it, but let's remember the context in which this is written. It's a hymn of praise, rooted in the love of God and the mercy of God. If God were only just, none would be saved. But God is a God of love and mercy and justice, and so multitudes are saved. But not only does the Father elect and plan this before time, but the Son steps in to accomplish the salvation. The Son purchases our salvation. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Clearly this is speaking of Jesus. He's the one who shed His blood. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight the son accomplishes the plan he fulfills the plan he steps in out of eternity the eternal plan becomes externalized in reality the eternal plan becomes reality in christ We see Jesus stepping in and carrying out the Father's plan. In John 6, Jesus himself said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we see in verses 7 and 8, not only Jesus coming to fulfill the Father's plan, but he comes at great cost to himself. This wasn't redemption by association. This wasn't redemption by fellowship. This was redemption by his blood. And Tim Keller asks the question, if you believe in God, but not Jesus, what did it cost your God to love you? And we see in this that it cost him his own life. The word redemption here is a beautiful word. And it again reminds us, it gives us echoes of the Exodus story in the book of Exodus where God sovereignly rescued his people. And once again, we see God's initiative at work here. The father who who rescues his people from slavery. There, There was no way they could escape. They were under the tyranny of Pharaoh who kept them as slaves in Egypt. And so God uses a messenger, Moses. And Moses comes and he brings the word to Pharaoh and he says let my people go and he refuses and so God acts God acts in mercy and God acts in in justice and he sends judgment and he sends plagues upon the people of Egypt and you know how the story goes God pours out his wrath eventually on every firstborn child and every household of the people of Egypt other than those who had sacrificed the blood of a lamb, painted it on their doorposts, 
so that when the angel of the Lord came, he literally passed over them because of the blood of the Lamb. And so they were saved. And in that sense, they were bought. The Lamb's blood secured their salvation. They were redeemed from slavery. They were bought from slavery and given freedom. Notice how Paul finishes the verse. He says, it was according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. But not only do we have redemption through Christ, not only did Christ secure our redemption, he also secures our inheritance. In verse 11, it goes on and says, In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so we have redemption in Christ and we have inheritance in Christ. I want to just... You may have heard this story. It will be a reminder if you have, and if you haven't, it will be hopefully helpful. Story of, of little Johnny who, um, who, who has a love for ships. He's grown up in Southampton, one of those great docking yards in, in, in the United Kingdom. And, uh, and Johnny grows up there and he has a real love for ships. And so one day he goes into his dad's workshop and he begins to carve out out of a piece of wood a, a boat. And he begins to shape it and mold it. And he eventually puts in a, 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 a spine and a, and a sail and, he, and the boat's ready. It's a little sailing boat. And he goes down one day and, and, uh, and there was a storm brewing, but he's... he's put it on the water and this little sailboat sails out and uh, next minute there's this gust of wind and Johnny's sailboat disappears. And he's heartbroken. He had spent hours crafting this little sailboat and, uh, and now it's gone, taken off into the unknown. And he's devastated and uh, Anyway, he comes to terms with it, and weeks later, he's on his bike riding off to, to school, and, uh, and as he passes a shop window, he looks in the shop window, and there's his, there's his boat. It's in the shop window, and so he puts his bike down, and he rushes in, and he goes to the owner. He says, where's the owner? He speaks to the owner. He says, that's my boat. Can I please have it back? And the owner's like, it's 300 rand. You can you can buy it back, but it's three, I mean it's mine now. It's it's mine, and so Johnny is distraught. He's like, "But I, I'm it's mine. I made it." And uh, he goes off, and he's he's distraught, and he's he, but he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a plan, and his plan is you know he's not he, he's he's going to save his his money that his mom gives him. He's going to sacrifice. He's he's going to work harder in the garden. He's going to he's he's got a plan. His, his plan is to raise the money, and then he's going to go and buy it. And and eventually, weeks later, he gets enough money together, and he goes into the shop, and the the boat is still there, and he he takes it and and he holds it, and he hands the money over, and as he's holding it, he says. Now you are twice mine. First I made you, but now I bought you. You know what we're talking about, right? God and his redemptive plan. We were lost. His creation strayed. Now you are twice mine. In Christ, we have redemption and inheritance. And now I'm going to sound like a very mark moment, very mark advert, but there's more. Point three, 
Lastly, the Spirit preserves our salvation. The Father planned it. The Son purchases it. The Spirit preserves it. Verses 13 and 14. In Him you also... So in addition to all of this amazing truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Church, sealed means sealed. Sealed means to mark or to stamp or to authenticate. And as Christians, we have been sealed with none other than the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. God doesn't make mistakes. He has sealed His children. Those whom He adopts, He keeps. He preserves them. He sustains them. He adopts us. We have an inheritance. And He seals us with His Spirit so that we would cry out, Romans 8, Abba, Father. Listen, church, we cannot be unsealed any more than Christ can be uncrucified. What the Son purchased, He seals by the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are doing this work together. There is no discord between them. Notice the text, Paul says, the guarantee of our inheritance. The Spirit is the guarantee the down payment, the assurance, the blessed assurance of our salvation. And so the Father chooses, the Son dies for us, and the Spirit calls us and seals us. So what is our response to this great cosmic plan? Just quickly, three responses. Humility, holiness, and sharing or willingness. Humility. Notice what is our response to this? Yes, there's an element of mystery, and, and maybe if this is the first time you've heard stuff on election and predestination, you need to read more and you need to study more, but, but stick to the Scriptures. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Allow the Bible to shape your thinking on this, not human logic. Because the point of this is humility. The fact that God unconditionally chose to save me when I didn't deserve to be saved. There was no condition I could meet. Humbles us to the ground, doesn't it? There is no room for boasting, which Ephesians chapter 2 tells us very clearly. By grace you have been saved through faith, so no one would boast. The point is God gets all the glory. And that's what we see repeated in this passage. In verse 6, in verse 12, in verse 14, we read in, in between all of this wonderful Trinitarian unity of, of bringing this cosmic plan to pass, we read things like this, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And again in verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Humility is our posture. That's how we respond. 
when we read of God's electing love, when we read of Christ's redeeming grace, when we read of Christ's purchase of us, and when we read of the sealing of the Spirit, our response is how, not, not, not how wonderful are we, but how blessed are we that we've received mercy. But not, not only do we respond in humility, but we are to respond with holiness because the text is emphatic on this, that God chose us for holiness. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holiness is both a position and identity, which is why he uses the word blameless. It's our position in Christ, considered from God's perspective, when we are in Christ, we are blameless. But from our position, this is a practice. Holiness is both a position and a practice. And we must never forget that. One of the great recoveries of the Reformation was that we are simultaneously sinners and saints. At the same time, it's the beauty of justification. How can we be justified before a holy God? Well, on the basis of Christ's work. Because we're still sinners. And so positionally, we are blameless in Christ, but practically we are to be holy. We are called to holiness. We are chosen to be holy. And holiness, the holiness of God teaches us that there is only one way in which we deal with sin, and that is radically, seriously, painfully, and constantly. Holiness is the sign of electing grace. How do I know I'm a Christian? Not because I'm perfect, but because I'm at war with my sin. The sign of whether you are indwelt by the Spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you are at war with your bad desires. It's not the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life that gives evidence of grace. John Owen said, Kill sin or sin will be killing you. And so we are at war. We're a new people. We're a, we're a people of God adopted into his family and we have a new relationship to sin. We hate it. We fight it. We're at war with sin. Our third response, so firstly humility, secondly holiness, the third response is sharing God uses us for his glory. This news is too good to keep to ourselves. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Notice the order. Notice the progression. It says, you also, when you what? Heard. So although God is sovereign, and although God chooses, and although God has a plan, He uses us to achieve this plan. When you heard the word of truth, in other words, someone came and spoke to you the word. Someone came and shared to you with you the gospel of your salvation. Church, we have this responsibility. Our response to this message is not, oh, if God's going to do it all, then we do nothing. No, no. If God's going to do it all, then we do everything with Him. That's what we do. That's what the text says. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, and what does it lead to? Believing in Him. 
Church, we have this responsibility, this incredible, this is the reason we have hope in evangelism. This is the, this is the grounds of our witness that God has chosen a people and we get to play a part in that. What hope? It's not up to our intellectual smartness. It's not about our cool designed areas where we meet. It's not about how good the coffee is or how friendly we are. No, no. When we share the word of the gospel, God uses that to bring people to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we are to preach the gospel to all. Never ask the question, well, who, who's God chosen and who God, who God hasn't he chosen? No, no. We preach the gospel to all. We go to all. That's God's prerogative. It's in the mind of God. It's in the mysterious will of God. We don't know. But what we do know is when I heard the word of truth, I came to faith. And so we do the same. We preach the gospel to all and we leave the results to one. Amen? Let's just end on verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a hymn of praise. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. I'm humbled. I hope you are too. What an amazing God we serve. That He would go to such great lengths to rescue us when we didn't deserve it. Blessed be God. I think we're going to respond in a song. And we're going to do that. We're going to bless God for His blessing us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your plan, Lord. Thank You for this incredible plan that, that You were not required to do because we didn't deserve it, Lord. You were not obligated, but we thank you that you are a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of justice. And we are so humbled that your justice was satisfied in sending your Son, that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, that Jesus was clothed in our unrighteousness so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. Father, we thank you for this incredible saving plan. I thank you mostly that we get to look into it, that this passage is, is a window into your eternal plan. And we confess we don't see it perfectly, and we don't see it fully, but there's enough for us here to see, for us to say, how great thou art. I once was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, we are humbled by you and your glory and your Son. And we thank you that you would send your Spirit to not only just be with us, but to be in us. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, you would, you would empower us this morning to accomplish 
all three responses that we would be a people who are humbled that we'd be a people who are holy and we'd be a people who are willing to share this good news the gospel of grace to all people and then leave the results to you in Jesus name amen let's stand and sing